Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Paul Rook, founder and director of customer centricity at PRWD. PRWD is a user research design and analytics consultancy. Paul, hello. Hi, Matthew. Thank you for having me on this show. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, we might as well dive straight in. What is your personal leadership style? It is being open and frank and candid with um, with with the team that are around me that are working within my organisation. So um, it's not being afraid of showing areas where I need to improve or areas where I'm working on myself. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not infallible. Um, I don't feel like I have all the answers. So I suppose I would epitomise it by saying kind of humility is, is fundamentally the way in which I like to try and lead my team and, and, and what I try to deliver and demonstrate to the people I work with and to our clients as well. So in essence, leave the pomposity at the door. Sorry, say that again. So in essence, leave pomposity at home. Yes, very much so. And, and I think I, I often... If you, if, you, if you picture it on, on a kind of scale or two ends of a spectrum with humility on, on one end um, and being open and humble and wanting to listen to and respect the ideas and opinions of other people and not feeling like you have all the answers, the other end of that spectrum is what I would describe as being where, where you can be kind of egocentric and feel like you have all the answers and you know kind of lead a company from the top down where you're just directing what people should be doing and you think that you have all the answers and it and it's a, it's a very fascinating and a crucial um a crucial thing that we experience with the companies we work with because on that scale from ego driven to humility driven um companies are often more kind of in my experience over 15 years they're more in the kind of ego led you know kind of product led mindset mm. which um for me isn't conducive of a truly engaging and um, open-minded workforce. And how did you come to your leadership style? Was there an individual early on in your career that inspired you? Um, I think for me, it was actually, I experienced in my two previous roles before I started PRWD myself 15 years ago, um, I was managed by um, two different people or or the two separate roles within the same company. I I moved from one department to another department. And when I when I took this opportunity to apply for the second company, um, sorry, sorry, the second um, job within this company, so it was a kind of cross-functional move, um, I got offered the job after the interview, so I had my leaving party in the first, uh, the first, um, uh, the first role I'd been. I'd been there about two or three years. And on my leaving party at the end, uh, my manager came up to me and she said, you know, I, I wish you well in, in the new role, but I think you're being really selfish. And, and it really struck with me um, because I thought I'd given my all for that department and that job. And this was a new opportunity. I was stretching myself. I was moving into the kind of digital um, industry, which has become what, what, I, what I'm now so deeply passionate about. So for my manager to, to say that to me, that I, was being, um, that I was being selfish in my decision, it, it just struck me as just seeming completely wrong, not, not right. Mm. Um, as it turned out, I moved, I moved into the new department. I was there about two or three years. But within the first 12 months, I realized the management style I was experiencing there was 
similarly oppressive, if I'm being honest. And I was very passionate. I, I felt I had a lot to offer. I wanted to help make an impact and make a difference. And this, this is going back about 18 years. And, and I just always felt like I was being pigeonholed and suppressed. And, you know, I was trying to climb the ladder, not necessarily from a, from a title point of view or salary point of view, but I just, I just felt I had so much to offer inside um, in, for the department. And my manager just really kind of kept me suppressed and just, just kind of kept me held back, really. And, and this led me to think, I got to a point where I thought, I can't take this anymore. I'm, um, I, want to, I don't want to be held back. I feel I've got so much to offer. And it led me to thinking that I'm going to start working for myself. And it was actually my dad um, years and years ago when I was about 10, 11. And he was about 30 or 30, something like that. And my dad worked for himself for two years with a business partner. And, and I had that at the back of my mind. So it was effectively, from an early age, my dad inspired me to, you know, to have the faith in myself to work for myself. But then it was the, the, the two separate jobs with two separate managers that held me back that was the culmination which led me to think, you know what, I'm going to work for myself. And I remember thinking when I started working for myself, if I ever employ anyone, my management and leadership style is going to be the opposite of mm. the last two, two managers that I'd had. And so that's where it came from. That's, that's where the, the humility and the open-mindedness came from. Well, often we get caught up in, in our own businesses and forget that the people who work within them are people and they have their own aspirations and dreams and it's important not to stand in their way. Um, how do you develop uh, your personnel? Uh, do you have any mentorship programs or any words of advice for them? So if we, I suppose if we go back first to the, um, the interview process, so when we when we put job advertisements out, we ask people to supply obviously CVs and maybe a LinkedIn profile, but also we ask them to provide a cover letter um, explaining why they feel they you know why they're applying for this particular role. And now even from that first stage, we get a really good idea of this this person about how passionate they are and how how motivated they are to try and make an impact um, on with us in the recruitment process. So we get some cover letters that are very generic. We get others that are very detailed and very tailored to the role and the company. So they've obviously done the research. So even at that stage, we can get an understanding of, of this person's desires and willingness to um, you know, stand out and, and actually want to show that this is not just a job. They really want to work at PRVD. So then when we interview them, uh, we meet them. We, we obviously ask various questions to get to know them, which is obviously a key, a key way. But we also, we also ask people fairly personal questions questions around you know what is it that truly motivates you you know outside of work what are you most deeply passionate about and you know what aspirations do you have like you, and then also questions around how comfortable do you feel when you're challenging the status quo or you're trying to be the change is that something that you're comfortable with because be the change is actually the why behind PRWD you know we we work to make a genuine true long-term difference with our clients so we need to bring people into the company that are willing to step outside their comfort zone and stretch themselves. So we, we really get a good understanding in that interview process with a few different steps about how, how compatible do we feel these people will be to come into this very autonomous environment. And then when people start, because we've gone through that process and we've got such confidence that they can make a difference, we give people opportunities to just dive in. Like literally, it's not a, 
it's not a slow process of bedding in and, and just taking your time. We, we've done our due diligence um, and we give them projects pretty much straight away. And it's that, it's kind of that think or swim attitude, but we pretty much always get everyone that swims. So, it does sound um, like your recruitment approach at PRWD uh, is is working because, of course, you're playing with some of the really big players in the game uh, at the moment. Uh, your client list reads uh, quite well. How do you manage to hold on to these clients? Yeah, no, thank you for touching on that. I, I, I've been truly humble since I started PRWD and I was a one-man band. Because I came from um, Shop Direct, which was great universal stores originally, so it was the biggest catalogue company in the UK. So I had this really good, solid experience from what was a you know a huge retailer in the UK. So in my first year of working for myself, we managed to work with uh, JD Williams Group, which was a competitor to Shop Direct. So I was working with a big company straight away. And then what happened about 12 years ago, so I'd been running PRW for three years, we, I brought someone in to help develop our first ever marketing strategy and plan. And what, what was delivered and shared back to me by this student from MMU University at the end of the summer 2008 was basically a, a marketing strategy to differentiate ourselves, to get out there, to, to do public speaking, to do training, to do blog posts, and to demonstrate that we're credible and we're an authority and we don't mind being open and sharing about our processes and methods to as many people as possible, mm. even when you don't get paid for it. So I took that marketing strategy that I was presented to and I ran with it and I started to speak, I started to write, we started to run events, I started, uh, we started to develop our social media presence and we started to do training, um, particularly for e-consultancy. And what happened is we then continued to attract some of the world's biggest brands to work with PRWD. And so we were two, two or three or four people. That, that, that was it. Yet we were working with global brands. Uh, we've worked with Nike. We've worked with Red Bull. We've worked with Games Workshop. We've worked with Skyscanner. Uh, we've, we've worked with the Louis Vuitton Moe Hennessy Group. And, and yeah, I, I just continue to be humbled by the scale and size of companies that choose to come to PRWD to, to ask for our services. So in terms of how we hold on to them, uh, clients, going back to your question, um, this is, for me, it's always been about developing genuine, meaningful relationships with the people we're working with. So it's not just providing a service. You know, I look to try and build connections and build relationships with the, the decision makers and the people we're working with. Because as you say, at the end of the day, we're all human. We're, we all have our own needs. We all want connection with other people. And, and connecting with people on a deeper level is, is something that, can really help develop far more meaningful relationships, and um, and I've I've seen this on an even more profound level since coming to faith in 2019. That the connections and depth of relationships I have now in a working environment has has just gone on a much deeper, more dramatic level. And I know that there's no turning back because it, this is this is about human to human interaction at the end of the day. Well, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Unfortunately, our time has drawn very quickly to a close. But before I let you go, just very quickly, what does the next 12 months have in store for PRWD? It will, inc- it, it will include um, increasing our new clients coming on board, developing, developing more long-term relationships, and continuing to demonstrate that as an agency, 
our Be The Change mantra is what epitomizes PRWD and it's ultimately what companies get by working with PRWD because we help them go on that journey from being product-led to being customer-led. Well, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you and I very much hope you come back on the show very soon. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. That was Paul Rook, founder and director of customer centricity at PRWD. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, <laughs> I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in Sir Ralph Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the 
recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to involved in my career in those early days were two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge when it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand. Whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you, it can have a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn suit, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment? I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think 
wanted to be part of a group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, in Denmark. Mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I like I was going to play, and didn't start because of just a lack of form, I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think Mm. I was just happy to be, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, Not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot, and it's there, and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind, that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of, very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we had some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. There's too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, "Yes, I was just about to to shoot to score the goal, 
And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's... Uh, <laughs> I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke and make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance around, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you in two. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, in most stupid, irrelevant questions that absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You've want, you got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a, 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 a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or 400 people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. On this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden I had a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> What a question. What a question. Uh, I think that would be definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. uh, Well, uh, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with things like that. I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did uh, um, did make us laugh that day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, (laughs) But there there would have become a point, though, Jeff, I think um, you were a young man when see, this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to, to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches, people must realise that that's, that has an influence how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a 
in a natural leader? Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding, I think the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is, is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's that a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah. The answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we we're successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back on an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, uh, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions. 
and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude (laughs) alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. the word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly. Uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership, all the time. It's a huge part of your life. I don't think you can switch off when you're in in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if if these top managers and leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, they will not switch off for for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation, and I think that's you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over it, go over the past, and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland its parent company, or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.